0: This is Nate Hansen and Tim Ritter. We are Almost Heretical. You can find us online at almostheretical.com. Welcome back to Almost Heretical. Uh, we're talking today about distance and separation. I have no clue what that means, but it does sound like... Uh, the, the hipster coffee shops, that's what came to mind. Yeah. <laughs> Distance and separation.
1: Well, we've been making the joke, so we're following up this conversation with the intro we just did to a whole set of conversations we're going to have roughly related to atonement and the temple system and all that. And the way I'm going to try to organize this is primarily each episode will introduce an idea or or maybe a couple ideas and sort of go through how we've misunderstood or or what we haven't noticed about those ideas. And then we'll see how those ideas sort of all play out. So I was sharing with Nate that my list of episodes is stuff like today's uh, distance and separation. One will be like danger and contact. It's all these lists of pairs. And we've realized all the hipster coffee shops and like cool new, like urban business names are always like goat and boar or yeah. like
0: and they all have that same logo with like the it's a circle and then like the cross of two like axes or something like that and then the established date down at the bottom in that like kind of industrial looking font yeah it's like oh wait that was just like that was just like last year right it's always like two words that are
1: sort of like fun to say but they don't have anything to do with each other so uh no that's not what we're doing but, yeah, that might, that might be how this feels. Uh, okay, so let's just jump in. Uh, so this one, um, I want to sort of talk about what I think is the main, if you had to pick one, the main theme from beginning to end in the Bible. Uh, so, Nate, let me put you on the spot. Uh, not, not going back to your most conservative uh, self, but just right now if you were to try to give the elevator spiel of the hyper condensed story of the bible uh, how would you how would you even start talking like oh, that jeez
0: yep. i look like tim freaking Mackie over here <laughs> the condensed story of the entire bible i'm not qualified for this uh, there's the garden and humans are given authority to rule And they mess it up, uh, I think, or some. I don't want to do this. (laughs) (laughs) I'm realizing I'm like 1% through the story I need to tell, and I don't want to do this. Fair. Uh, Let's start the show over. Hey, Tim, we're going to talk about distance and separation. I want to throw this to you. (laughs) First, can you start off by trying to explain sort of the story of the Bible in a real quick, you know, just fly fly over? (laughs) Okay, so...
1: I think one of the ways to understand it is which, what we read when we read Genesis 1 and 2 uh, is that the, the good thing that God brought about and celebrated as good was God and humanity together sharing sharing a space on, uh, on earth. And the bad thing that happens— is that a, a separation is necessitated we don't need to get into the details of why or how mm, right. uh, but the the tragic consequence is uh, is there has to be a separation between uh, humanity and God so so humans are banished from this the space that God was sharing with them and uh, and so the the tragic you know what typically it's called the fall. The, the tragic state of the world is one in which humanity and, and God are separate. And the entire point of God creating a people for himself uh, is to reunite the entire world to to God. Now, a lot of what this series is going to get into is that there are a whole lot of underlying assumptions as to why that would be difficult, what that would entail, <laughs> what kinds of Changes, actions, whatever. Uh, Tim, why can't God be around us? No, that's that's not
0: this episode. <laughs> uh, but why? Well, okay, but so why do we
1: have to be separated? So hold on.
0: Why so, does have to be? No, it's separation and distance. Why? Why did God have to separate God's self and distance Himself from humanity? A lot of people have problems with that. A lot of people are gone right there.
1: Right. So I just said part of this this series, actually, uh, part of the heart of this series, is going to be. Uh, re-exploring the assumptions underneath these ideas. So I think the reason that idea of separation is so off-putting and why it has been used in ways that are so uh, awful. Remember, we talked about that, uh, that chasm drawing that was on the, the uh, tracks for so long, that, right? That was mm-hmm. uh, gods on one side and there's the big canyon. Uh, and we're on the other side. And
0: was it sin that was in the middle? Is that why? That was the reason for the... Oh, there's a lot. Uh, remember that was that one episode where we looked into all the different things people put in the middle. But yeah, sin separates us from God. Um, some people remember put the fires of hell down there. Oh, right. I guess that it's it's sin, but then if you keep falling down the chasm in the middle, you eventually reach the fires of hell at the bottom. But yeah, I think it's sin. I think most people would say... Through Romans, that sin is the thing that separates us from God. Sure. Right. So uh, we briefly touched on this in our last conversation. But
1: I think the underlying assumption in Protestant Christianity is that the separation is because of how God feels towards humanity. And what I'm going to make a case for from various angles in this series is that That assumption is is foreign to these texts, foreign to the Bible, and the thing that was in various authors' heads—and I do think there's diversity, uh, so this will be complicated at times because I don't think every author of different texts in the Bible thought exactly the same thing—but what many of them were assuming was there are—let's use the term scientific— there were scientific reasons why God and humanity had to be separated, and, and we don't hold to those beliefs. Uh, we don't have those notions about the world and why—what When I what I mean by scientific is simply the natural order of things, the kinds of beings that we are, the way the world works, the way— uh, material system is organized necessitates this i mentioned last time not because god feels any particular way about us this is just the belief about how things are right so this
0: is that idea that like god is on like this is where we got to like the spacesuits basically we were talking about we needed spacesuits in order to go to you know another planet essentially and meet with aliens there. Like this is a similar concept that we need to be in a different, we need to have something change in order, or God has to have something. Someone has to have something change in order for these two parties to be in the same space.
1: Right. So I think uh, next week we'll get into some of the underlying thinking about why contact between God and, and humans would be dangerous uh, but for now, you know, I've mentioned, I think, uh, in response to a, a listener question, oftentimes we take the, the Bible far too literally, and other times we don't take it nearly literally enough. And I think oftentimes the Genesis 1, 2, 3 texts, those first three chapters of Genesis, have been taken far too literally in terms of explaining practically why separation had to be required right so we read this story just to summarize we read the story about humans in a garden and they're given these jobs to rule over the garden and cultivate it but then there's this restriction of this tree that they're not supposed to eat from and then there's this weird event that plays out with a snake and we've you know we've gotten into that symbolism basically but then because of this, event with the snake and the eating of the fruit, then there's a set of consequences that are dished out. And I think we have over-literalized the way that mythological story, that narrative uh, depiction of uh, some sort of primeval uh, beginning, that the way that pr- pragmatically explains why human beings and, uh, and God uh, are separated. And ma- basically we've said, because, you know, this is the the Luther framework that I've been beating up a lot lately, because God just really, really doesn't like how awful we are, right? God really hate, hates our sin or God can't stand uh, our sin. And, uh, and therefore it's that thing about us uh, that that necessitates that God is choosing to be distant from us,
0: right? So you're saying God doesn't have a choice? At you're making God sound kind of weak. So because we sin, and we can talk about what sin is and what actually happened or all that, but because we sin and do the wrong thing and do what we weren't supposed to do, now God has to be distant from us in the sense of like distance and separation. Like He, he God can't be around us? I, I don't get that. So let's just,
1: for one second, just there is an explanation in God's words in Genesis chapter 3 as to why human beings have to be banished. And it has nothing to do with God's feelings towards us. It actually, I think if you're reading this well, God is empathetic to what humans just brought about on themselves. That's why he's going through to articulate Uh, the terrible consequences that they're going to reap uh, because of this. It goes through, we've typically called them curses, but God is just listing out the consequences (laughs) uh, for the men and the women. And then in verse 22, it says, Then the Lord God uh, said—oh, by the way, in verse 21, uh, there's this strange but highly symbolic line that the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Uh, so you have this act that seems very much like a sympathetic, parental caretaking act, right? Not like abusive parent, you know, <laughs> like uh, kicking them up, kicking them out, screaming at them, you know, uh, telling them all these nasty things about them. It's actually like almost this sympathetic. I can't believe my toddler just did this, right? I'm going to do the best I can to uh, to take care of them in this moment. I'm going to put clothes on them. But then, uh, verse 22, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Again, if you want my interpretation of that verse, go back to some of the first episodes we ever did. Back to the quote. And now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. End of the of of God's words therefore the lord god sent him out from the garden of eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken so he drove the man out and at the east of the garden of eden he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life so we're given an explanation in in these opening mythological primeval chapters as to to why separation has to happen, and it has nothing to do with God feeling negatively towards the human beings. It has something to do with assumptions of what (laughs) would happen if these people got a hold of the tree of life, right?
0: Right. That's still pretty confusing. Sounds kind of like a storybook, um, which I think that's part of the point you're making, right? This sounds like the beginning of Lord of the Rings or something like that. Um, Harry Potter like the beginning of some sort of epic novel which probably is more like what we should be interpreting this as but yeah I'll have lots of questions later I think about then okay the the more we talk like this about the Bible the more it feels like this is just a, an ancient people's story about the origins and then an ancient primitive as we as we move along similar to other nations at the time their stories about how to interact with stuff that's naturally happening in the surround in, in in our world and in our universe um sorry that just got really meta but like that's that's what this feels like and so i appreciate that we're going to like dig really deep into what this specific people group thought about this specific the time they were living in and the sun rising and setting and how they attributed that to whatever, like I appreciate that. I'm just saying, aren't we going to find that this has less to communicate to us than we used to think it did.
1: I think we'll likely find that it it has less and more to communicate. At Various times it's going to feel like uh, we're just undercutting uh, ideas and beliefs that were once foundational to us. And I know that's destabilizing. Um, but at other times it's going to, in my view, offer pretty compelling replacements. Um, so I'll ask you, Nate and listeners, like have patience if it's when it's just feeling destabilizing, like inevitably there always is a replacement. It's just up to us to decide whether that replacement is is satisfactory. But I think it's also up to us to be honest about whether the current thing, <laughs> the tradition, the norm, has been satisfactory, right? And then everybody's just got to make their own interpretive decisions, their own uh, be- decide what you believe, what you are okay with, which which you're not. So, uh, but if we jump back into this, like, if we're going to try to to take literally an explanation as to why separation exists, simply looking at at Genesis chapter three, then I think what you should go do is reflect on the philosophical question of w- what would the world be like if a set of human beings who just entered into a war, which I, I think is the the primary essence of what this serpent thing is, just entered into hostile relationships with others, uh, had access to eternal existence. If you want to take it literally and and Theorize about that. That's, I think, <laughs> where this goes, not to does God dislike me or not, right? And actually, interestingly to me, most of—you just mentioned J.R.R. Tolkien—most of Tolkien's entire world and story world, The Lord of the Rings and The Silmarillion, was actually a reflection on, on that question <laughs> of the role of death and, uh, and non-death, right, eternal existence, uh, in a world with as much violence and hostility and power games and all that uh, as ours. So zoom out even further. Bigger conversation is about there being this this uh, idea about a, a distance between humans and God, the separation, and there being various assumptions about why that has to be. So in Genesis 3, it's articulating something in this primeval story about the role of life and death and this war. And to to really understand it, you got to get into all this symbolism. Uh, But then I think we'll see other assumptions, right? So one is, I think you also see a a sign of it in in Genesis uh, 1 through 3, the very opening line of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And later, some other time, remind me, Nate, we can get in the argument of whether this is actually creation or some other uh, kind of verb happening here. But I think it's significant that the very first line of the Bible introduces these two spaces, heavens and earth. Uh, and almost, I, I think I've started to see pot- potentially some parallels. Um, you think of Genesis and the main characters you think of are are often sibling pairs, uh There's often <laughs> brothers or sisters uh cain and abel and uh and from then out that get sort of juxtaposed or they have this uh hostile relationship with one another and there's a kind of relational chasm between them. I think there's almost this uh symbolic tie there between heavens and earth, where this first line is setting up the heavens and the earth as the two main characters these are spaces or spheres. The two main characters that are going to be in a, in a tense, <laughs> uh, disrupted relationship. And that relationship, the resolution of that relationship is the, is the main problem that we're going to, to see worked out. Hey, Brian, do you know anyone that was once a teenage fundamentalist? Oh, Troy, you know that I was because you and I have a podcast called I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. I did know that. But you know what I find myself asking these days? No, I don't, but I think you're going to tell me. What about all those things that church gave us definite answers for? What are we supposed to think about all those things now? Well, funnily enough, that's what we're doing for season five of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. Ooh, Brian, I sense the Lord at work here. Mm, He works in mysterious ways. And we are going to unpack these things. We're going to find out what we do think about them now. So tune in to season five of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist, the official podcast for the Azusa Street Revival. (laughs) Um, I'm not quite sure that's true, but it is available wherever you get your
0: podcasts.
1: So I think many of us have been familiar with the idea of like, it's not about us leaving Earth and getting into Heaven. It's more, we've come to see it's more about there's a separation between Heaven and Earth and it's sort of this overlap that we're we're working towards, right, or hoping in, where Heaven can come to Earth or be re-
0: reunited with Earth. Sort of more familiar with that framework, right? It's like basic N.T. Wright, to Mackey. I think they've helped make that a little bit more... I mean, I remember when N.T. Wright was considered like, whoa, you're reading N.T. Wright, like you're a little bit <laughs> out there and now. I think where where progressive Christians have moved, N.T. right seems like a pretty safe home base for the reformed folk who are who want to feel a little, you know, a little edgy. But uh, and then Tim Mackey, I think we he makes a lot of that normal um, to talk about heaven coming to earth and kind of this return to New Jerusalem and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, I think it's pretty widely accepted and pretty 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 much normal in a lot of even reformed world. Yep. By the way, I think I'm going to start using reformed a lot more. I I don't really have a lot of experience with evangelical. I don't think, I think my experience is with reformed world. I was just thinking about this. I don't think I was ever really a part of an evangelical church, but that's a separate conversation. (laughs) I'm just saying, I I don't, (laughs) my job on this show is to say what comes to my mind and that's what came to my mind.
1: Fair. Okay. I hear you, Nate, and I appreciate you sharing your feelings. Uh, okay, so an, another assumption that I think we can uh, pretty easily see, but isn't just spelled out, again, because it's an assumption of the writers, is is to do with their cosmology. And their cosmology, we've sort of tried to explain this out a bit, um, but the, the two basic elements are there's a <laughs> an earthly sphere and a heavenly sphere. Uh, there's a, a human realm and a divine realm. And they are uh, separated. Uh, And some of these, they're literally, there's a physical barrier, a physical separation. Um, Whether or not everybody actually believed that um, literally, materially, or just that uh, sort of existentially, theologically, there there are these two realms, a a divine realm of the heavens and a a human realm uh, of earth. And those are different places. God has... God's place, humans have humans' place. And where that assumption or or that way of thinking meets the uh, Genesis 1 through 3 story is that basically the, the good hope, I think these texts are articulating, was that God and humanity could share this earth space. So one interesting thing that you'll have to just go reflect on and explore on your own is it's it actually seems if you think about it that we should be reading the the genesis 1 through 3 texts and the end is god abandoned humanity and left to the heavens <laughs> but instead the the thing is that god banished humanity from the garden right <laughs> out of the, the garden, which was in the the east. Uh and it makes it sound as if God's still walking around on earth somewhere, right? <laughs> and that humans have just been uh separated from this space. So
0: so it'd be easier for us, I think Can I pause for a second? Sure. So I guess I have a hard I'm having a hard time with this because I don't think this event happened. I don't know that anybody that wrote these texts think this event happened okay so th- i just want to get that out there right um, so read because... it as
1: sim- symbolism and and mythological literature so what is it trying what idea is it trying to get at
0: okay and so then we're what we're trying to do with this episode is to say the way the ideas and the ways that this has been used whether or not you think this actually happened or not even if it's just we all think it's mythology taking that mythology and then doing and believing X, Y, and Z with it could be harmful and hurtful or whatever. And believing this other thing could be more beautiful. But we're not trying to make an assessment about whether or not this thing happened.
1: Well, no. Okay, so just this wasn't the point. This wasn't why I was bringing this up. But let's let this make a point for us in response to your uh, your feelings right now. If you're if you're reading this literally, God planted, made a garden on the earth and put humans in that garden, and then God was there in the garden with them. And then something bad happens, and God kicks the humans out of the garden. Now, if that is an event that literally happened on a, in a physical place at a real point in history— then shouldn't we be able to go travel somewhere and find God in a garden? Yeah. I think some people want have tried to do that. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, I've mentioned this uh, briefly. There are texts that aren't included in, uh, certainly not in our Protestant Bible. There are texts that play with that idea that there is a space. Uh, some of them are related to the whole Enoch tradition. Uh, there is a space on earth where God dwells in this this paradise garden that is distant from humanity. So it's in some far off place. This is back when people thought the world was flat and you could have some far away corner, right? Uh, or even just imagine that there's a far away corner and that there was a location on earth, but far away. Here, here's my point. This is trying to communicate basic conceptions that i think we can see if we're just careful they weren't taking literally (laughs) right my point is what i'm saying is they believed i think probably more literally that if god physically existed in a space it was it was not here on earth and yet this story is written as if god is supposed to still be standing here on earth in a garden somewhere right i think we could just read that and say this isn't (laughs) <laughs> this isn't their depiction of a of a real uh, geographic occurrence. Uh, I actually think what it's trying to get at is it's trying to convey some of the basic uh, cosmology, which is both from two different angles. One, God is in heaven and humans are on earth. Two, God is in a paradise garden and humans can't go into that garden. those are if you're looking for basic, scientific facts, those are mutually incompatible stories. If you're looking for basic meaning, there's one very clear shared sense of meaning, which is that somehow, in some way, for various reasons perhaps, humanity and God are separated from one another, and there are various obstacles uh, or distances or
0: reasons for a great distance between the two. Does that make sense? Okay, but uh, Tim, a lot of people think this really happened so we might not and the writers may not have and people that listen to our show may not but a a vast majority i think of the western christian world thinks this happened and it feels like a litmus test for whether or not you you can trust and believe god and we've talked about this before whether or not you believe stories like this happened and that God could have physically created the earth in seven days and that God could have physically created everything in seven days, you know? And so, all six days, but you know what I'm saying? Like people legitimately believe that this happened and that us saying it didn't happen rules us out as Christians. What are we supposed to do? (laughs) Like that just feels so hopeless to me. Yeah. I, I guess I just say like, there's a lot of work.
1: To be done right, like we're doing our little small part. Um, it's not surprising at one level, like that we have poorly understood this complicated ancient uh, text. It it is altogether surprising and very troubling how confidently we've, <laughs> we've yeah acted. people will die on these hills yeah yeah which great transition because I was going to talk about mountains <laughs> <laughs> does anyone die on them
0: <laughs> okay let's talk about that.
1: Okay, so uh, I think that—so th- one assumption has something to do with life and death. That's why there's separation. We see that in Genesis 3. One has to do with just the the location of of the home places of these two different uh, kinds of beings. And the third has to do with one we'll get into next week of there being an existential danger inherent in, in the, the contact between uh, species— but, but one thing I think we'll have to see, and, and this is, to me, probably uh, one of the absolutely toughest parts about biblical uh, scholarship and interpretation, is I think if we're really careful, so we'll, we'll start off trying to see what were these people really thinking, and we'll look primarily to some of the earliest texts, primarily Old Testament. Then we'll see how New Testament people... New Testament writers were thinking along the same lines, and that can sort of confirm, you know, if you have multiple generations seeming to share assumptions about the world, then that'll help us uh, feel, you know, more confident that we're sort of uh, scratching up the right tree. But the other thing we'll have to pay attention to is that I think, for instance, earlier writers might've held a view about why separation existed between God and humans, that later writers, just like we today, are saying, "Well, I don't, I don't really know that I believe God lives in the heavens, right? Like we've sent astronauts to space, and they didn't run into God's temple anywhere, God's throne anywhere, right?" Um, I think there were writers, even some of the New Testament writers, even some of the later writers who we find their texts in the Old Testament who had di- started to differ with some of the, the cosmology and existential assumptions and yet maintained some of the basic meaning. In other words, the storyline that, that God and humanity is separated and that the main plan is to reunite God and humanity, that gets carried forward even while people start to have their own new reasons for why God was separated from mankind in the first place. And that evolution of ideas, while there are parts of it that are being carried forth, working that out, that kind of uh, ideological evolution is to me some of the toughest thing to do. But it also, if we're capable of doing it, it can have dramatic explanatory power. For instance, why we might read Paul Talking about some of the same strange cosmological events, but potentially using language that was pretty foreign to any writers in the Old Testament. For instance, you know, Paul talks a lot about the difference between, like, the body and the spirit, right? <laughs> or like nature, uh, and sort of the the old man, new man, or the spiritual man and the and the flesh, right? Yeah. There's this like. F- flesh non-flesh thing going on in Paul. I think that's just one example of the way Paul was using new language most likely from his Greco-Roman upbringing and Greco-Roman mythology and philosophy that it influenced him to offer new explanations for some of the same basic ideas separation between god and humanity. So part of that what that means is okay well what is biblical <laughs> right? Like, I think it'd be safe to say that, it, that the biblical writers agree that the story is about uh, separation and reconciliation between God and humanity. When you start to ask me, Nate, to explain why that separation exists, well, I think you're going to find that various authors and different generations of authors all have completely different answers uh, to that question. Um, and some, even where this is going to go is like, uh, so I said mountains. Remember how I I mentioned briefly, and we'll get into the the details of it. Blood, I think is an intermediary substance that God can come into contact with blood. Humans can come into contact with blood. So it's this border room, right? You use that analogy of the
0: space station sort of meeting place. Yeah, it doesn't make sense. I can see how... You're saying that's what the biblical writers are saying. I can see that, but it's just like something that we find in Harry Potter, where like, okay, that's just the way it works in that world, and don't ask, you know, don't ask too many questions. There's it's a long history on why that is. The, you know, that's what it feels like to me. Like it's, it's one of but those. But that's fine. Of
1: things. Harry Potter is wonderful. Well, I know, I know, so, I know. I'm just saying. So. Do whatever you had to do to enjoy Harry Potter. I, do that right, here. But
0: the, no one is trying to take Harry Potter and saying, and so because of that, I'm going to base my entire existence, my children's existence, and what I think you should be doing too with your life based off of Harry Potter. And maybe there are, I, actually there probably are some people. But I, I actually think there are. <laughs> <We> should, <laughs> and I'm fine with it. God bless you. But okay, but you see what I'm saying. There are a few people doing that. There are a lot of people doing that with these, te- these biblical text. Okay. I'm going to ask
1: you just to feel liberated to not do that. Treat this all as big picture ideas, symbolism, motifs, themes, and, and try to remove yourself, for instance, in this blood one from like, but that's not literally true of blood, right? (laughs) Like, like, I think honestly, part of it is these, these modern presuppositions and approaches that we bring to texts. That fundamentalists and atheists both share, and and I think I'm seeing some of it come out in you, uh, even in this conversation, which is I just don't know that the ancients would have had, would have had to do that sit to, to like suspend their disbelief. Well, sure, right? No, because of course I they wouldn't. Think... That's what I'm
0: saying. Th- this this all makes no, sense. no. But not
1: because they believed that about blood. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying because they didn't have to have a material. Uh, rational, logical correlation to things. You could make a statement, uh, this is my theory, you could make a statement about what was true of blood in a, in the context of talking about stories, and and they wouldn't get hung up with like, well, is that factually true about blood? Does that make sense? That's a hang-up you and I have in the world of like fact-checking and science scientific observation and and all that is good right i'm not trying to be anti science i'm more just trying to get us to think in a literary mindset it, like we do with when we read harry potter in which we don't need to know why the, a broomstick can fly right like we can just be like a broomstick yeah it's a thing that flies like we're there together let's build a world based on that right yeah. let's understand Uh, something. So for now, okay. So blood is a thing that insulates.
0: (laughs) It's it is hard for me to turn that off though, just because of how this stuff is used and the fact that I know that that's not how people are approaching this. You know, I I appreciate that we're going to approach it that way, and let's just say we're we are going to do that, and you know, make a pact that that's how we're going to approach it, and probably our listeners are are cool with doing that. But I mean, that's not how people approach this. So, anyways, we can move on, but that's why I have that hang up is n- people aren't approaching this book this way.
1: Right. I got ya. But the new Testament writers did and the early church did because, you know, one of the little lanes that this set of conversations is going to take us down is, is the metaphor of Jesus's blood. Right. But no one actually believes that Jesus's blood was physically placed on every person who became a part of the Christian community, right? So they were able to see something as as metaphoric and symbolic and find true meaning in it,
0: right? <laughs> I guess I always saw that one as like some sort of supernatural thing that like—because now I'm, I'm actually trying to think about how did this guy dying— and in the old way that I thought about this for me to, to cover my, it's the blood covering. Sure. But like, I just, I guess that all, that all happened, not just symbolically like, Oh, that's a nice picture of how that happened. But it was like this supernatural thing that happened where that covered me, you know, cause it's the whole, what the world we see is not the real world. Like this whole matrix kind of thing behind the scenes. Like it's all happening in that world that I was covered not in the physical world that I can, yeah, blood didn't actually, but, but in this other world, this is almost like, uh, you know, the, the software I'm talking in the hardware behind the whole system, what actually happened. And I was, I was physically covered with something, I guess, in that world, this is sounding really weird, but well, no, but this is a great, this is a great point because what is, what is the true hardware
1: behind the system? And in traditional Protestant thinking, it's God's view towards humans, and so because we we didn't believe we don't believe that that blood is physically creating this you know as I mentioned last time cosmic hazmat suit, uh, then what it what that whole system must have been about is how how God actually is up there feeling, thinking about things, viewing the world, <laughs> right. Because whatever happens to us with Jesus' blood, we didn't actually touch the blood. So it it couldn't have been, you know, it couldn't have been too close uh, to anything like uh, <laughs> insulation. Uh, but it has to be connected. We know the meaning is being drawn from whatever that meaning was in the, in the Old Testament. So one way, I'm, I'm not articulating this well, but I think you just put your finger on something, Nate. One result of the fact that we haven't stopped to think about the the symbolic meaning that was derived from these physical material ideas about material space in in the world is that we had to find something that was the same in the hardware <laughs> then right in the Levit- in the levitical system and 500 years ago in God's world during the Reformation and now in the year 2019, some direct correlation needs to be made. We haven't made that via, here's what the symbolic meaning was then, therefore here's what the symbolic meaning is now. Instead, the one common denominator we could make is is God and and therefore, God's views, God's thinking of us, what God wants to do with us or to us, that's the thing uh, that the, the mechanical change is happening there. That's the location of of change in that hardware. And that's where I said, to me, the most important question is, is did, does Jesus change God or does Jesus change us? <laughs> and I think the reason that answer started That question started to be answered as Jesus changes God during the Reformation is because all of this background, these weird assumptions and whatnot, were
0: all lost. Like to make it make sense with kind of a basic under new Western understanding, the theme all the way back to the garden, like you have to, it would have to be God changing is what you're saying.
1: God is the one common denominator, right? (laughs) Yeah. So God is the one; is the one thing that can change. I I want to talk about this later because I, I think there's probably better ways for us to articulate that. But I th- I think you just put your finger on something. So okay, all that was a was a, a bit of a rabbit hole related. Oh yeah, yeah, mountains, mountains, mountains. Let's talk about mountains. The hill to die on. Uh, okay, so mountains are another uh, evidence that there's there's thinking going on in the writers and, and probably in the culture that they're a part of, that there are different things, different spaces, different spheres, and then there are overlap places. So I believe blood was an overlap substance, just like I, I said, I think smoke was too. Uh, and I think mountains were overlap spaces. And the logic is pretty easy to see. Uh, the heavens are up, right? In a flat world, <laughs> the heavens are up; human earth is down. Humans didn't live on mountains uh, until very Closest recent history. Close as you can
0: get to that other space. I mean, ladders would be that in-between space if you had a high enough ladder that could, you know, stand upright. I, that's exactly what Jacob's ladder was. Oh, there you go. Yeah, that's right. I forgot about that. <laughs> is that what that little toy is called too? That you like turn over and the it like falls down the wooden block and like the kind of ribbon thing that goes through it. You know what I'm talking about? I have no idea what you're talking about. Uh, hold on. I'm Googling this. Jacob's ladder toy. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. So here you go. Here's a video. Mm. And I think the idea is that it keeps climbing. So that's why it's called Jacob's ladder. Pick it up. No, never seen this.
1: No, but it's playing a trick on your eyes was doing, huh?
0: Yeah. It's not the thing actually falling. It's each one flips. Cool. Yeah. So that's a, that's Jacob's ladder. You now na- now, you know, Brilliant. You could probably build one. It's
1: amazing the stuff people came up with before uh,
0: high technology. Yeah. It's a okay, we better get back here. So, yeah, so a ladder or or some sort of, – I mean, yeah, you're looking at your, your space. You're living at sea level or in some cases probably below sea level. And you look at a mountain or a hill or whatever it was. You're thinking I, that's allowing me to get closer to this other space. You don't understand what's up above clouds or what atmosphere is or what – ozone is or any of that type of type of stuff you don't understand what planets and galaxies and stars and all that stuff are so um i understand i totally understand it in a primitive world probably wasn't something that only the israelite people had it was probably i'm guessing something that was shared by other people that a mountain was a way to approach the gods yeah it
1: was it was a shared uh, belief that Mountaintops were uh, the abodes of the divine. And, you know, even in modern day today with uh, modern technology, most human beings can't climb and don't climb most mountains, right? 2,000 years ago, nobody was climbing mountains. You lived down in the lowlands, the wetlands, as close to water as you possibly could, where you could grow plants. and you weren't spending time on mountaintops. So it's another one of these spaces that is that is away from human civilization, but close and connected to it, right? Hypothetically, a human could go up a mountain.
0: Mrs. White Temples and things like that are on mountaintops, right? Like I I was in Malaysia and I hiked the Batu Caves and uh, that was that's a lot of steps. But I mean, that's the idea, right? You're putting it 2,000 steps up into the sky because you want to be as close to whatever god you're talking to. As possible
1: yep it's the exact idea the, the idea is is two things temples are on mountains but temples actually are mountains uh-huh. and so uh, temples are are built in the shape uh, of a mountain um, ziggurats are another one that were basically a, a mountain-shaped man-made mountain
0: okay so w- when I'm when I'm climbing those steps to the Batu caves in Malaysia or any number of temples that are on mountains it's not the it's not the temple that is like built on a mountain. You're saying I'm, those steps that I'm climbing, I'm just going to where the top of this temple is, which is the mountain.
1: Right. So so a mountain is a natural divine abode, a mountain top, And if you don't have a natural one, <laughs> then you can build one uh, artificially. Okay. Uh, you can build a, a mountain. And so actually, Genesis 3, the Humans have to be banished from God's presence in in the garden. But then you get the uh, the Cain and Abel story. You get the weird Genesis six stuff. You get the Noah and his family story, and then you get to the the Tower of Babel scene, right? And essentially, the the Tower of Babel, it, most scholars would agree, uh, is a a ziggurat. It literally says they want to build a tower to the that the top. Uh, the top of the tower is in the heavens, literally. So the point is they're they're going to build a bridge between the two realms to reconnect the thing that had just been separated. Again, there's a whole world of assumptions as to why it had to be separated, right? <laughs> that That we may or may not share. The point is most of the audience is supposed to be understanding, oh yeah, You know, (laughs) there just is this separation or needs to
0: be. So they would have viewed like a rocket ship and actually leaving and getting as high as you possibly could up into the sky as like the ultimate temple. Yeah, except the technology, the impressive technology of the day was mud bricks, (laughs) was clay, bakeable bricks. Right. Am I right that a ziggurat is more like the temple mount in, in Jerusalem than it is like the... Skyrise building in New York city. Like when you talk tower of Babel and you said it's, it's a like I'm looking at pictures of these. It looks like what I've seen. I haven't been there, but of the temple, not of like what I had in my head, which is this, like, it wouldn't even make sense. Like, I don't even know how they would do that technologically at the time, build a straight up tower to the gods.
1: No, they, but they wouldn't, but that's the point before you had the onset of bricks, you couldn't even build a two story home. Right. So a, a new technology, and and I think this is still mythological story, right? But it's mythological story based on uh, events that everybody would have known about, real historical developments, which is technological advancement, uh, with technology and technology that is very expensive, that is only actually doable, as we know, most all the Egyptian pyramids were built by slaves, right? Only doable if you have an empire who can enslave such a massive portion of society to force them to do manual labor. Only then can you actually build the ancient version of a skyscraper, but it is it's, we can now build, you know, there's like a race to build the new tallest building in the, in the world every year. Right. They just keep adding the like spiky little uh, tip on the top of it. (laughs) Uh, Antennas. yeah. Yeah. But our modern technology with cement and steel and all that. Uh, can build taller and taller buildings. With each new advancement of technology, you can build a taller building. And so the idea was, wow, there's this great technological advancement that can do what we couldn't do before, build our own mountain, and can accomplish what a mountain accomplishes, which is bridges the, the separated realms, bridges the two realms of, of heaven and earth. And so this whole strange thing of God changing their languages and scattering the nations it's just another worldwide iteration of what already happened in, in Genesis 3. It's this reinforcement, right? There's these cherubim set up in Genesis 3 so they can't get back into the garden. It's a reinforcement of this separation. It's the same thing that's happening. It's a reinforcement of this, uh, this artificial uh, mountain. Um, but the, the basic assumption that we got to understand is that mountains are this intermediate, space. So actually, one thing that I think is is known in some circles and is has not been noted well enough in other circles is that the Garden of Eden in Genesis 1 and 2 isn't called a mountain or a mountain top, but it's described as if it is because it's a place from which all of the rivers flow out of, <laughs> which even ancient people knew that gravity pulled water down. Gravity. And therefore, Uh, Eden was simultaneously being described as a garden, a lush garden space, uh, and a mountaintop. And this is one of the things where, again, as evidence, we shouldn't be reading this literally. We know, and I think the ancients probably knew very well, that actually, in real life, mountaintops were not good places to grow lush, beautiful agricultural spaces. (laughs) They are arid. They are uninhabitable, right? Right. Uh, I live here in, in Bend, Oregon, uh, in the middle of the uh, Oregon Cascades. You get up to about 7,500 feet and most trees can't even grow, right? That's the, the timber line.
0: Okay, but Tim, most mountains in the Middle East aren't aren't close to 7,500 feet. There are right? some.
1: What is Mount Hermon? Uh, my guess before I... I'm, I'll share my guess and then I'll look it up. My guess is
0: 95. 92, 32. Okay, I just realized like twenty five percent of our audience is on the metric system. Um, mm.
1: uh, meters. What are our meters? Uh, two thousand eight hundred fourteen meters for okay. the people out right. there. I stand correct. Nine thousand two hundred thirty two feet. Yep.
0: Um, I, get, I think actually, I think oh, I'm thinking of like Jerusalem. Like I know, like when they talk about mountains there, when Jesus is pointing to a mountain and say, like those are pretty small hills that he's from our. <laughs> it's
1: totally our estimation. A little hillside. So again, that's another one where they, okay, so uh, I'm glad you brought that up because one thing, at least I had heard this noticed in sermons and whatnot, is the weird fact that the Temple Mount in Jerusalem gets referred to as, as a ginormous mountain. And the point is because theologically, theoretically, in symbolic meaning, it is because that was the, the chosen home of God. So it, it didn't bother them. It's not like nobody noticed that Jerusalem was actually not very high up <laughs> and isn't actually the tallest mountain uh, in the world, right? Uh, they felt okay saying that because they're talking about the, the symbolic meaning. So you see this, this motif all over the place, starts on the first pages Eden. Uh, described as a mountaintop. I didn't see this until I took a seminar with Tim Mackey, but the story of Noah sort of goes out of the way to to make the point, without saying it, to allude to the fact that when Noah gets off the boat, it's on a mountaintop, and he performs sacrifices there on a mountaintop, uh, meets with God on a mountaintop. Then you have Sinai or Horeb, and we'll maybe one day get into all the discussion about... So like Moses goes up right mhm up on the mountain yeah. uh meets with god uh, then you have the the temple mount like we talked about in jerusalem and then uh, we get this whole idea of a of a new jerusalem so there's this this motif that a, a garden paradise and again this is one shared by israel's neighbors it's not a it's not something that these ins, you know inspired writers came to believe because god told them that this was a a orthodox motif, right? This was just a shared uh, cultural, uh, a shared part of the cultural psyche uh, of many ancient peoples, based on their experience in life, right? Looking around at the world and mountains, um, but the idea is there is an intermediary space where God can go because a mountain reaches up to the heavens, and humans can go. You don't want to spend much time there, right? But humans can, brave humans, heroic humans can climb a mountain and potentially encounter God. And so that's exactly what you, you see uh, in many, many times, many places. It's also the ide- ideology underlying. Remember all the mention of the the hill places in the Old Testament, right? And yeah. there are these people build Altars there, and then other kings come and they
0: tear them all down. The high then... places is that what you said? The high places is what I remember. The high places, yeah, yeah. or or hill places, yeah. Uh, it's it's the same idea. You got to get up high. I always picture that epic scene in. Uh, I think it's it's either two towers or Return of the King in the movies. Um, it's in the book too, obviously, but that it's the scene that the the sweeping shot of the the mountain range with the the pillars, the the mm-hmm. fire. What, what are those things called in the books? beacons they're called beacons but they're basically communicating by lighting one and then you know 100 miles away that another one is lit but because you're so high you're able to see uh it being lit and yeah that that little that sweeping shot like that's why i always picture it when i see the high places or the hill places in the old testament it's my favorite scene visually my favorite scene
1: This is all part of this greater theme of separation uh, and, and distance. And, and the hope, so we're talking mountains. We're talking how Jerusalem then gets configured as a, as a garden and as a, as a mountaintop because gardens and mountaintops are symbolically uh, the space of gods. And I, and I mentioned this last time, but let's just look at it real quick. The, the end of the book of Revelation speaks of a new temple mount, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven to be on earth. <laughs> oh, right, yeah. And the, the throne, which is God lives on a throne in heaven, in his divine space, and then in the, the temple or tabernacle, which is a reconfiguration of God's abode. There's a, there's a throne uh, in the temple. And then the picture, the symbolic picture of the end of Revelation— uh, I know we usually just focus on he'll wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will no longer be any death, no longer any mourning or crying or pain, right? It's a beautiful, I mean, beautiful uh, imagery, but I think we miss the underlying point of like, how will those things be accomplished <laughs> or like what must happen first? And it's this whole bringing together the the two worlds. And if if you're curious, if you like this stuff, it's interesting, just go through and you can look at the symbolism in Revelation 21, and see other elements of the cosmology of things that were attached in writers' minds, either literally or just uh, symbolically, uh, to these two spaces. So you have things like there won't be any more nighttime. Remember we talked about how divine beings and the stars and the sun, were so, these balls of light were sort of lumped together, <laughs> right? So you're seeing this like, ball of light and then god is talked about as being the source of light and god is light and all that Mm -hmm. and so Mm -hmm. when god is now back on earth living with humans there's no nighttime and the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it for the glory of god has illumined it and its lamp is the lamp this idea there's this whether or not the john the revelator Literally believed when he looked up at the stars, he was seeing divine beings. I don't know, but everybody for many, many generations correlated at least symbolically the idea of divine beings and
0: celestial objects. Oh, can I add one thing? I think this is, let me make this connection in my head of why I think it's, it's nice to just do an episode and talk as if we all think that this didn't really happen. But the reason that I get hung up on that is because people do think it really happened. They will then go to the extreme of saying we need to think what Paul you're saying, maybe didn't even think, but that these were celestial beings up there. And I think that, but when they're actually burning balls of gas, to quote the great philosophers, Timon and <laughs> Um but that, that makes them have a harder time accepting real science and real data and real knowledge that we have. And that causes, Problems because then we have a hard time with trying to convince people to like vote for people that actually respect science and that that, that's what I'm saying. That's why it's nice to just kind of shut off the fact that maybe some people, a lot of people, aren't with us and thinking this stuff didn't really happen. But sometime we got to address this, right? Like we have to. I don't know what we can do. (laughs) I'm just saying that that seems like uh, kind of a big deal.
1: Yeah, it is, and and I do think seeing symbolic meaning that we haven't seen before does make us makes humans in in general more open to seeing symbolic meaning being the point right it's kind of like what we were just talking about with the atonement stuff if you can't see any symbolism right but you have to find meaning (laughs) that is part of uh what leads to this biblicist uh bent i think where we try to over literalize uh Symbolic literature and and even that I don't even know how comfortable I am with that uh, that language um, and I don't even know you know so if I just stop here and say generally when I think about the the hoped for solution that God would be reunited with humans what does that actually mean I I don't I don't know right so if it's not literally a temple floating down from the sky if it's not you know being raptured and taken up into this literal heaven uh like how do how do i even think about it how do i how do i feel it if i can't picture it in some way right do i need to have a picture for it
0: well yeah and psychologically i think we're finding out a lot about approaching god as if god is distant from us and god is separate and god is uh yeah removed yeah and i know that's been big for me to realize or to not think of God in those terms so anyways I, that's where I can get here and I can I can play around in this space if we're saying we don't think this is actually the way things are but I do believe that if there is this divine being then God would have to be in every molecule and atom fiber and whatever the smallest thing is we've never even discovered yet I don't know I, I anyways I know. I have a lot of hangups, but uh, we got to end this thing.
1: Okay, so I love when you accidentally uh, give me a transition. So the the last thing we'll say uh, this this episode, and then we'll we'll pick back up uh, soon, is that you can see the basic conception separation between beings separ- separation between realms that is tragic in its nature. And then you can see that there are things in the world, even things in our bodies like blood, that represent uh, intermediary uh, spaces or substances that have the ability to reconcile those <laughs> realms or beings that are distant from one another. And, and that the primary problem right, is that God is not with us because we have been separated. Then you start to look at how, fear not, because God is with you, how God being with Israel is, is the main <laughs> idea that keeps getting brought up again and again and again, and that the the notion that a human being would be born, who one of the names that we would want to call that human being would be God is with us, Emmanuel, hmm leading to Christians several hundred years later having the imagination trained to be able to conceive that a human being lived who was an intermediary space and substance between the divine realm and the human realm who reconciles and brings those two together in his flesh and body and his human life like you can see where that makes some logical sense, right? And isn't just this crazy out on a limb uh, doctrine <laughs> that people came up with, but is rooted in this idea that there is a separation that is tragic. And there, are, there is the, the theoretical <laughs> thematic possibility of, of a reconciling uh, factor or force. And then you can, I, I think, brings a lot of meaning and, and beauty to the idea that a human being lived who was, as you're just saying, Nate, not afar off, <laughs> not a far off God at all, but that God was actually so close, so near, so with us that God was a human, a wonderful human. Mm, yeah. <laughs> and that that is the thing that that human, And that human's life, the life that death couldn't destroy, is the thing that will reconcile these two worlds. That will overcome this distance. Uh, That starts to shine in a new light. I think,
0: and that's why this story is still interesting to me, and why I still, as much as I can't get there on maybe even a lot of things that that the writers would say happened in Jesus' life, especially as we found out on the show through some of the things you've um, research you've done to see that maybe they were even just trying to not state historical facts of things that Jesus did, but try to explain who he was anyways, even though I can't get there for some of that stuff. And just with the science piece, like I still think this story um, for the most part is beautiful and want to choose this story. Okay. We'll, we'll pick up next time. We forgot to say that the reviews thing, Okay. Don't fast forward. Don't end the show yet. We have, we just have to say something. We need a little bit of help. (laughs) (laughs) Okay.
1: Every podcast out there, it's, we, it's just what podcasts got to do. They got to ask people to uh, give reviews uh, uh, and an iTunes rating and review uh, on the internet. And uh, (laughs) we often ask that we haven't asked in a while. Um, And it just also happens that, you know, as we knew our show kind of has a love it or hate it, uh, response. And it just turns out that the one star crowd has been out and about lately. (laughs) So we've just recently gotten a flurry of one star ratings. They don't bother us. We know, I assume, I, I think I know pretty, pretty well, what's going through those people's heads. Sometimes they, uh, they tell me, uh, but basically If you're listening and you enjoy the show and it's helpful and it's meaningful, uh, can you go tell the Internet that? Uh, Because the Internet uh, seems to attract uh, more people who are angry and seem to want to, you know, tell people what to avoid and police the boundaries of, uh, of orthodoxy. Uh, more so than it does people who just want to say thanks, uh, keep up the
0: good work. So, right. And we know you're out there because we get all your wonderful emails. You can keep sending those. We love reading them. We we read every single one and we often incorporate some of your ideas, your questions, your thoughts, poems even, things you all have sent us from this wonderful community into this show and future episodes. So you can do that at almostheretical.com. Just click on contact there Um, and you can support the show. You can become a patron. All that is available on the website. Okay.
1: (laughs) I was just thinking about how, uh, in this conversation, you know, the real unifying action would be a three-star review. Like that would really be what would bring the world together. Uh no wait explain no that. one gives three star reviews, right?
0: <laughs> like no one's no, five stars come out and one stars come out. Tim, don't be encouraging three star reviews, <laughs> please. Know,
1: but it's just <laughs> a thing of like no one's like, I think this show is just a totally average show. It's exactly. And therefore stars. I'm gonna
0: go take five minutes <laughs> and uh, cast three star vote. This is uh, this is good though, because we kept rambling for a little bit, and if you're listening right now, you are the iTunes review crowd. I mean, you're the team, your team (laughs) pause the show or stop the show, go do iTunes review. It's actually kind of simple, but yeah, if you, if you could do that, that'd be awesome. Okay, Tim, that's the end.
1: That's the end. We'll see you next time. Peace.